Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You wake up in the morning, and then what happens? <laughs> oh, put your headphones on, Peter. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Come on, put your arms around. <laughs> I want to hug you and hug you and hug you some more. Right through all these microphone cables. Go ahead. I know I'm in the right time, in the right space. Do you feel that? I'm Helga Davis. Kimberly Drew falls into this category of person who is doing more than one thing. She's a writer, she's a curator, and she's an activist. She started her time in this field at the Studio Museum in Harlem. And she left her work there to start a Tumblr blog called Black Contemporary Art. She's presently the social media manager at the Met Museum, and she came in to talk to me. This is Kimberly Drew. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Has today been a long day for you? Yeah. I feel like it's always a long day, you know? There's, There's something about being in this city and one being stimulated all the time, having to get from one place to another in the way that we get from one place to another. I try and do my meditation, right, so that I can go out into the street and I can be a little bit more calm and centered and focused and whatever that is. And I I do think it is a thing, right? And then you try and go up the stairs and somebody's on their phone and you can't actually get to where you're going. (laughs) And then the shit just starts to roll downhill and you got to get out of the way or you've got to you got to get dumped on sometimes or not even or I'm sure there are several other choices, but sometimes you can only make one of those two choices. Or you lose your mind and you become that person who is the lunatic on the subway and hates everybody and it's like, rah. And then I go back and I try and remember, okay, so Helga, in this moment, you have a choice. Do you want to be poison or do you want to be medicine, like Mm. like the Buddhist people say? And sometimes I I do. Why want to be poison? Because I I don't have it in me to be, to make a different choice. And then when I get to my next place, if I haven't made the choice that I'm most proud of, I try and make it to wherever I end up. Yeah. So you ask me if today was a long day for me. Was it a long day for you? Say what's happening. Yeah, no, I I think a lot about what a long day means. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wednesday's a day I go to therapy, so I just came from my therapist. And I love the consistency of that because it's always a moment to stop like every Wednesday is the day that I realize how much I've been running and I think for me no day actually feels long until I actually stop and that's the thing in New York that's hard is actually finding the moment to pause because we don't until you bump into that person I'm usually the person who's on the phone I did that this morning I got on two wrong trains because I was using my phone on my way between point A and point B and was like I am the problem I am the problem. I am the one holding myself back from these things that I've decided I need to do Mm. because I, I don't know. Because you're doing something else. Yeah, because I'm anchoring against something else that may not be the priority because actually the first priority is being alert and keeping my eyes up. But I feel like I need to send this email or or else. And so, yeah, it's a really weird thing. But the, the poison medicine thing is real concrete. I think that being deliberate about those choices is something I wish more New Yorkers did. But you're a native New Yorker, right? I am indeed. Born in Harlem Hospital, girl. Yeah. I I grew up in Jersey. Uh, But for me, I'm always naturally suspect of people being nice Mm. because I always wonder what the motive is behind it. Mm. And I think on the other side of that, it makes me more deliberate about the moments when I choose to be medicine because I know that it's coming from a really intentional space and not just because. It's not like, I'm not from Virginia. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, no shade to Virginians. Virginians are the nicest people, you know, like as the, you know, the anchor for, or the, the, the value judgment on that. But I think a lot about how that decision to be medicine is something that we don't make or articulate in ourselves in a way that might be, could be more meditative and restorative. So you go to therapy on Wednesdays 
And is that an hour? Is it? 50 minutes. 50 minutes. You say that with such a big smile. <laughs> it's like, no, not not even 10 more minutes. Not even 10 more. Because that, that thinking about rushing, I thought about that today because I was three minutes late. Huh. But then I realized that I could still get my full 50 because there's still time in between. And so there's like this window for error and messiness that I really cherish. So that 50 is a really big, important number. And it's the first time that I've been seeing someone on a weekly basis. I used to do every two weeks, which I realized because my days are long isn't sufficient because they'll be like, and then I did this and then I did this. And then it's like, there's no way that this can all be held in, in the amount of time that is allotted. And so then it feels compromised. Hmm. But now I feel like there's more of a fullness in the 50. What brought you there? Not, not the specific thing necessarily, yeah. but that, that you made a decision to spend your time there. Yeah, a number of things. Uh, this is the second time I've been in therapy in my life. The first time was because I am a habitual planner. So when I turned 23, I kind of had this internal clock and mixed with some information where I was like, okay, when people have issues of mental illness, which there's a wa- like a long-standing history in my family, it usually arrives in your mid-20s. And so I wanted to start to build a foundation to be able to have some sort of infrastructure if the bottom should fall out. So I started intentionally, I reached out and it was so funny the first few sessions because I think oftentimes the way that we're socialized around therapy is that something has to be absolutely wrong. You have to be unpacking some sort of trauma, you know, opening some box that you didn't know needed to be open. And I arrived and was just like, I just want to tell someone all of the things I want to build this relationship so that should something go wrong, that you already know where I'm at foundationally so that you actually see what I believe to be wellness And then it can be judged against whatever else I bring into this space. And then I was seeing that person for just over a year and I stopped seeing them. And now I'm back again because in between my two therapists, the bottom did kind of fall out for me. Mm. Uh, And it was a real moment of having to be radically honest with myself uh, because a lot of my friends had just assumed I was still seeing someone but also saw that something was up. And so being being able to say, okay, not only am I not being transparent with the people in my life about what's going on with me, but I also need to additionally take a level of action around getting myself to be more healthy and to build in these these ways of care that are really just necessary for a full life outside of some something really going down. Um, so for me, it, this this time feels more intentional and more necessary and critical. So the 50 now is like has a particular weight and every week I don't want to go and every week I leave and I'm so glad I went and it's just talk therapy. So it's just an opportunity to just totally unload all of the things in one place or all the things I choose to unload in one place Mm -hmm. really specifically. It took me a long time to find the person that I'm seeing now and that research process also was really affirming too, um, like as a as a reminder of uh, the ways in which we choose the people in our lives especially because it's a professional relationship and one that happens within all these other systems around healthcare and yada, yada. So it wasn't a decision I made lightly, um, but it's one I feel really fortunate that I could make because of the liberties that I have in terms of having healthcare for work and stuff like that. But I talk often about therapy with people because I just love it. I knew it was something that I would love and I had my own apprehensions about it, but I was never a child who was put in it. My parents were divorced when I was fairly young, but that wasn't a thought of theirs to, to put me in some sort of like therapy thing um so being an adult and making that decision was one of the core markers in my life now as I look at it and I'm like okay this was a good mature thing a decision that I don't regret at all what do you love about it yeah uh one I love it as a consistent thing like a like a beat on the metronome or like the life that I lead and having a full-time job and then doing all these other extracurricular things there's so many things I have to do or I feel like I have to do on a consistent basis and this one is so divinely for myself, where it feels like an obligation in some ways, but it is something that is so unabashedly self-serving, but also makes me a better member of my community at the same time. So it's like this, this really full gesture once a week. You said the life that you lead. Mm-hmm. I feel like we, we started in the middle of something because we started talking about our days. Talk a little bit about what that life is. Yeah, so many things. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
First and foremost, I work in the art world and I am a social media manager, really invested in bringing art to as many people as I can uh, through digital communications. And that bleeds into a lot of other work. So I lecture uh, to try to talk to younger people as a gesture of one, presenting the possibility of the work that I do, because when I was in school, being a social media manager was not a thing or was not a thing in the way that it is now. And then additionally, being able to show them what being a black woman in the art world looks like is something that I'm really invested in as a as a gesture. And then outside of that, I'm working on a book project. What else do I do? And then like <laughs> here and there, I just like show up and do shit. Like I, I, I mean, any friend who's doing a show, I try to go to. Um, I try to spend a lot of time with my family. I grew up in New Jersey, and so my family's fairly close, um, close by proximity-wise, but then also we're pretty tight-knit. So... The life I lead is trying my damnedest to be the best friend, the best daughter, the best coworker, um, and it's a challenge I take on every day. Especially so thinking about like social media too. There's so much labor involved in it, mm-hmm. especially doing it professionally because the internet doesn't turn off. In the same way that being a listener is something that is an active choice every day, is a muscle that you flex, and then also too is. Being able to hold the conversation in the way that you have is like elegant almost. Cause like for me, I'm so used to like a very like, and then you ask a question and then I say, and then, uh, and, uh, and, and being able to totally, you just like, we were like waltzing away from <laughs> a traditional <laughs> conversational structure or interview structure. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, right. I can, you know, relax and not have to do this thing in this way, even though that's my like go-to comfort blanket way of engaging. Is it just visual arts that you feel most connected to? I think in my personal consumption, I love photography. And it's interesting because it took me a while to realize it, that I was like, oh, I'm really drawn to this particular medium. And I think it's because the only art class that I've ever enjoyed was a darkroom photography class that I only took because I was afraid of the dark. (laughs) and decided that that was how I was going to get over my fear. Mm -hmm. It it was not a good idea, Mm -hmm. but I did just barely class the class. Uh, I forgot how time-consuming it was, and I put myself through college, so I was working. So I love photography the most, but in terms of the things that I like to push around the Internet, anything. Oh, The other day I found this syllabus that uh, NYU Skirball created for their programming for the fall. I was like, oh, this is dope, because they basically like went down their calendar and provided supplementary materials for all the people. And I was like, this is jackpot right here. So there's not really, I don't really discriminate in that way when it comes to an information share. I'm all about it. But when it comes down to myself and the things that I hold dear, it's probably, yeah, it's definitely photography in terms of like digital consumption and then like things I actually have materialized for myself some like small drawings from black women artists I've been like every time I get like two pennies to rub together I'm like that (laughs) I'd like that please Mm -hmm. (laughs) black women in art what did that even mean to Mm. you Mm. as a as a young person and what person or what things did you see or experience that helped you understand that this is where you wanted to be because it's not an obvious choice for us still yeah it makes me think a lot about my friends who are musicians like yourself when you ask a musician when did they become a musician there's not really a start stop time right it's like a lot of people are socializing to music because they come from musical families or you know there's a rhythm that's always been a part of it's just a rhythm that's part of life right that then you're able to right or they have a teacher right right of course and for me it was more of a, it was always there. Um, my family always was invested in creativity first. I was not raised in a family that was like, be a doctor. They were just really invested in me being the most full version of myself. So there was first a permission to choose what I wanted, which is really the foundation for, you know, the rest of it. Um, I don't think if, if I didn't have that foundational self-determination kind of factor, then none of the rest of it would have been possible. But additionally, when I was trying to conceptualize the spaces that I wanted to be in, I always returned to the museum space. I crave silence. And I feel like museums, especially museums, have always been a space where I could be as internal as I needed to be. 
but still amongst others, you know, not in a way that when you're riding the subway and you happen to not be looking at your phone, you know, there's this consistency in the ways in which people move in, in art spaces. And of course, that's becoming more radical, which I'm really invested in as well. But when I was conceptualizing as a young person, what it looked like, it was it was always that. And my family, especially my father's side of the family, when we would gather, we would go to museums. And so it was also a space that I always felt that I had ownership over, that I felt was also a part of my way that I understood family, you know, mm-hmm. a, a way that I understood a gathering space for my people, like very specifically my people. And so when it came down to what am I going to do when I grow up, I had many, many thoughts. I was studying math when I first got to college because I thought I wanted to be pre-med and then I was an engineer for a time and then I arrived in an art history class and realized that that was how my brain was hardwired and all of these lines were connected where I realized that okay my family has always been really invested in creativity my aunt is an artist there's um, a poster for Algyra Gallery which is in Newark in her office where I'm like not only did I have proximity to a black art world my entire life, but like very specific, like very, very, very proximate. But until you learn the vocabularies of those things, because of course it is an opaque world, it doesn't mean anything. Um, and so for me right now, I feel a duty to be able to, or not a duty, but I like being able to provide people with those markers, being able to provide people with a vocabulary through which they can begin to see themselves in the arts it doesn't have to be as hard of work as perhaps it's been presented, especially to marginalized people. You work with kids a lot? No. Yeah, no. I wish that I was a person who could. It's a goal of mine, but I work a lot with teens. Okay. I'm curious about teenage people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, big sigh. <laughs> this is the place in almost every community that my heart is broken mm. and particularly in in our community whatever our is mm. and here's here's how i'm going to say it so today i got on the train yeah four african american women one african american man they were probably i would say 16 17 they're making a lot of noise they have a lot of energy Okay. And as I enter their space, the young man says to one of the women, tell her that if she ever does that again, I'm going to smack the shit out of her. And then, so the girl that he tells that to, she's sitting right there, but it's a big show. Mm. And so the girl that he says that to actually repeats it. And then one of the other girls who was standing up starts to say, lick the back of my balls. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, what's going on right now? Really, what's going on? And then he says a thing that completely shocks me. <laughs> he says, yeah, y'all know, like, that space, like, where the back of my balls is and my ass is, that got the most sweat glands, yo. <laughs> it's like, well, you know that. Yeah. <laughs> so what's all the rest of this? And then I look at what I do, and I really do try to understand what my place is, what my role is, what my responsibility is, what what can I do with that? And maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe there's nothing I can do with that. And maybe that's that's our cultural collateral damage. Maybe it's not my responsibility. But there's some part of me that doesn't quite believe that. And I don't know what to do. And we talk about art, right? Yeah. And and working with people and I work in all of these spaces and I don't know what to do. You just came from the therapist. Tell me yes, what let's let's talk about let's unpack this. I'm fascinated by teenage people right now, uh, especially with the advent of social media, because I think 
a lot about the many iterations of myself that came to be in that time and how none of them were complete, how none of them really needed an audience, how some of them really needed an audience, uh, and how deeply I judged myself in relationship to what I believed I should be. And so when I think about this scenario and when I think about the teens that I encounter in the museum space, I think about how I can challenge myself not to think about what they should be doing, Um, how I can acknowledge that even behavior that might be read as misbehaving comes from somewhere, how if I held myself to my litmus at 14, how flawed I would be at 27. So I, I think so much about how much discovery happens in that moment. And so I don't think that there's a lot that you can necessarily do in exact moments in interactions. There's so many ways in which you radiate qualities that many young people would be so lucky to encounter. Um, And so for me, when I think about the ways in which I work with teens, I think more about being a possibility model than saying, do this thing this way. Because I know my way is not the right way. Right. And I know that too. Yeah. In a very profound way. And that I sat there and was silent and just tried to hold space, Mm. a different space. I mean, for sure, inside me, in my brain, my brain was saying, what do I do about this? Mm. But in my physical presence with them, I didn't say anything. Mm. And I know it's it's not my place to fix or demand that they be different than who they are. It's one of the things that I believe the most. It's one of the things that I, I hate the most. Right. That's part of my my tension with my mother. Even to this day, she wants to know why I couldn't just be like and you can fill in that blank any number of ways. Mm. So I understand that I'm not interested in making that pain Mm. again. Mm. And at the same time, I think that this point that you're making is that, that to understand that it is a moment of of growth and of development and and that you just have to be the person you are and be that yeah and that that that's enough in a lot of cases even if it may not feel that way yeah I think it's a difficult judgment call I think that I don't know there's so much that can be loaded in those moments I mean especially when there's these moments of, and I, and I don't want to use misbehaving as a way to refer to that, to the behavior, but when there's a moment that there's a choreography that seems offbeat to the way that perhaps we live our lives, or when there's a word or phrasing that feels uncomfortable and unsettling, I think that's something to identify as something that is our own. Absolutely. Uh, but then also acknowledging that, like you were articulating, that it is a moment in time. And so perhaps in the moment she may have repeated what he'd said, but there's a way that she can also find agency in that. And then I think that that agency is found in others. I think about how, um, I don't know, I feel like there's a responsibility on us as people who are older than the teens in this moment to just continue to be committed to providing better examples and not as like the surefire examples, but if you wanted another option, <laughs> these are some of the micro changes that you could take. Uh-huh. Because for me, I think so much about how growing from being a teen to right now, there's so many people that I stole little things from. And a lot of the work that I do through social media now is thinking about how I can thrust those people in front of other people and say, you know, this person exists in this way and and this is how they define success for themselves and this person who lives in this place this is how they define success for themselves and whatever sticks with you sticks with you i did an interview uh two weeks ago and they were asking me about mentors and i've never exactly had a one-to-one mentor relationship but i call many people mentors because they're the people that i've observed and taken the most from and thinking about how that relationship of observation is something that's really critical and can't be understated. Uh, That's what I think about in that moment where I'm like, okay, perhaps there's a moment or like, you know, Alyssa, when you watch people, it's like it could very well happen that the fourth girl in that group saw someone self-possessed and quiet and she had a curiosity about you and maybe there's, 
maybe you had a tote bag that was for some literary group. You know, like who knows? Mm -hmm. But there's so many ways in which we can signify different possibilities for young people that happen totally outside of what we decided about them. And they can make their own decisions about us. But for me, I've been really deeply obsessed with, especially with the, the teen group of this moment, because there have been so many ways in which we've predetermined what they're doing and how they're doing it. Oh, the teens love social media. Not all the teens love social media. I know so many 13-year-old Luddites, and they're fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because not only are you, you know, outside of this kind of curve that everybody's associated you with, but you made the deliberate choice not to be on these things when they pre-exist you or they pre-exist your way of understanding or connecting with people. It's like those stories, those those micro moments and that privileging of space and holding space for those people and understanding that there can be a floor made for them. That I think is the critical work in what we can do for that age group. And I think it, it doesn't happen enough. Mm-hmm. We're so invested. And I think it happens generationally. And it's a, it's a mistake that we all keep making over and over again, where we just decide what a group needs And I think at a very basic human level, what everybody needs is the opportunity to learn and grow. How does social media help bring art to people? I love that question phrased that way. Uh, I think that social media is a tool for gesturing to things. Social media is a tool for saying, this is what's going on over here. This is what's going on over there. It's a way for people to have a very public and private relationship to information. And so for me personally, when I think about the way in which art can serve uh, via social media, I think about it as an opportunity for people to build their artillery of things that they know about art in a space that allows them to make their own value judgments in a way that's outside of an, a, like a historically elitist structure. I think a lot about the difference between, say, the art of food and visual arts, where if I feed you a dish and you don't like how it tastes, you can say, that dish sucked. And you trust your taste buds. You trust the way that your body chemically has responded to something. But if I were to show you a painting, there's a hesitation in being able to say exactly how you feel or relate to it Mm -hmm. um, because of the ways in which we're socialized around the value of these things. And I think that social media enables us to have a more casual encounter, of course, like with respect to not everybody having internet, right? Um, But I've been running a blog called Black Contemporary Art since 2011. And one of the reasons why I really stayed committed to the work on it was because I liked the idea that you could have a mini archive of black artists in your pocket, that you could open the blog and every day learn a new something. And there was one destination that was really explicitly and unapologetically invested in purveying these these artists and these images. So I think that social media for that, for art in that way is really exceptional, that you can, you know, have access to this essay and take all the time you want to read it or not read it or save it somewhere, but that it provides the opportunity for an encounter and an invitation into a world that doesn't hand out a lot of invitations, even though art is all around us. You know, I think a lot about architecture and how buildings are literally everywhere, but we don't stop to look. We don't stop to think about these different accents or moments or this is this, you know, from this era or this time, we, we grow almost numb to being able to stop and pause and and really bask in the glory of of artistry. And I think that it happens within the social media sphere as well. It's like you're inundated with so much information. But when given the privilege of time, it can be an opportunity for for intense, expansive interaction. I don't even want to see education, but Mm -hmm. more just like brushing up against stuff. But even that you make the choice to use that word, right? Interaction versus education it closes a kind of chasm and gives permission to a lot more people. Yeah, I love it. I love it for that because it's hard work on the other side, um, writing the language, trying to keep it scholarly, but also accessible. But, oh, it's so good and so satisfying. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good because when you get it right, you get it right, you know? Um, I try to spend at least 80% of the day thinking about other people and and ways to better serve a public. I did a panel about activism and 
During the conversation, the phrase take a stand kept coming up. And I was like, we can't keep saying take a stand because not everybody can stand. And that doesn't mean that they can't be a part of the, right. the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so being a wordsmith, I'm going to call myself that. Um, that's really like the how I live my life is communicating. And you too. I mean... Watching you interview, even being interviewed, having that honor. <laughs> but we're, we're, but that's that's another thing too. Like this is a place where I was very deliberate mm. about the fact that I wasn't going to interview people that I wasn't interested in that, mm. but that I was interested in conversation because there are plenty of platforms and places for people to talk about their books or their movies or their latest this or that. But there aren't a lot of spaces where people are going to come in and say, has it been a long day for you? Yes. And here's why. And here's how. And here's what happened on the subway. And I feel like we we learn so much more about the other and about ourselves in that conversation. Uh, yeah, I can go online and read someone else's review of someone else's book or right right? but this thing is really about my curiosity about the people who sit here with me and and speak people that I see all the time people who are my colleagues my friends my contemporaries my ride and dies <laughs> because we're we're running we're writing we're thinking we're reading we need silence we don't get a chance to just sit and look at each other somewhere mm-hmm. and say hey what are you thinking about how are you feeling mm-hmm. and so that's why it's so great that that you're here i am curious about I like that you're that you framed it in this way of conversation as opposed to interview. But I do also have some curiosities about how you draw the line because I think it's it's a hard one. Or do you do you see it as a hard line between the two things? And then also in what ways can you keep them keep the worlds of like work and pleasure separate in conversation? You know what I'm saying? Cuz I feel like I'm interviewing people constantly even when it's conversational. And so it was interesting that you articulated that there was a, a difference between the two. I think just using the word conversation already makes it different. Mm. So in me, when I come in here, I'm coming in to have a conversation. I'm not coming here to interview you. Mm. And it may seem like semantics, but it, it really isn't. It's a different thing. And the fact of the matter is, I love talking to people. I will talk to anybody, (laughs) anywhere, because I'm curious about who my neighbors are. I'm curious about those moments when I've made up my mind about who that person is. And then I sit next to them and I have some conversation with them and I get to see how completely wrong I am or how completely right I am, or what an idiot I am. And I love challenging myself in that way and finding myself in every person I meet and hopefully them finding some part of themselves in me. Mm, I love that. I I talk to some friends about how we find home in each other. And it's everything. It's everything. Oh, my goodness. And it's not about real estate because I think that sometimes that can happen too when you talk to someone and you're like I was talking to someone earlier and I had this moment where I was like I am maturing because I exited a bad energy conversation because <laughs> I was just like this person's talking too much and then I ended up in between two people who were talking too much and I just exited at a really awkward time in the conversation I was just like you guys are trying to have a vulnerable moment but you're not really listening and I don't want to be a part of this anymore self-care um, self-care but that real estate thing um, is really 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 truly significant where are your people from so my mother is originally from ohio and my father's family has been in new jersey for a few generations but before that was in missouri but i was raised in new jersey with both my parents and they both still live there wow yeah even that you know i feel like we could have an entire conversation around what was it like to grow up to be 
an African-American woman and grow up with both of your parents? Because I know so few. Yeah, I have the most incredible parents. Mm. And I don't get enough opportunities to talk to people about them. I've introduced all my friends to them and their mainstays. Uh, and they're hilarious. And so almost to a point where I'm like, you can't meet them because you'll like them more than me. But I I feel super fortunate to have them and so greedy about it. Um, Why are they so amazing? Well, my mother in particular is... I mean, all the women in my family are hard-headed is like the easiest descriptor to map us all together. Like, you know, Maxine Waters reclaiming my time. That's a family politic. Uh, and so I come from a, a line of women who are very invested in having things their way. And if it doesn't go their way, then we'll do for ourselves. And that kind of self-starter spirit is something that I totally credit to my mother and the deep overachieving thing happens on both sides, but my mom in particular, the overachieving and generosity, this blind just giving and commitment, it, it's just, I don't know, it's bigger than a desire or a responsibility. And it's so funny because when I was growing up, it was so often something that I was punished for too, where she'd be like, you gave your lunch away to someone. You needed to eat your lunch. But I'm like, this person was hungry or like, you know. And I, I challenged her on that later, too. But she's like, I just didn't want people to take advantage of you. Mm. I was like, but I literally watch you give all of your things away. So what do you expect? <laughs> like, what kind of child did you think you were raising? My father really taught me about education. He's one of the smartest people that I know and has not had a ton of formal education. It was always imperative that I was reading. It's always imperative that I was taking in information and very deliberately on my own time. Uh, and I really am thankful for that. We would always go to the library. We would always read. He he always kind of created space for me to to learn on my own pace. I was always a slow reader when I was growing up. I still am a slow reader now. But that ability to live in that pace was something that I inherited from my father. Um, and so having both of them in this, you know, this giving mode and this space holding mode is something that I feel really fortunate for and has been part of the architecture of how I've, I've come to model myself as an adult as well. So I'm an only child. My parents split up, and so I had two single-parent experiences, which was great because they also kind of raised me to also be their child friend, a confidant. And so there was not... And, you know, my other family members feel how they feel about it, but there was never, like, grown folks' business versus what I could know. And so I always really respected and appreciated that, too. And that's also to to circle back to the conversation about teens where it's like, you got to give them the room to figure out what their language is. Mm. Give them the room to bump up against some things. You against know. you. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe not you because then you're like, all right, look, these are my rules for my body. Against you also. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I feel like I, you know, sometimes... I can wake up and I say, yes, I believe this. And then life will bring me the exact opposite experience mm -hmm. as if it's saying, yeah, you really believe this? I mean, one of the things that I'm talking about all the time is how we have to have all of ourselves. We, we must. And so I get down in the subway next to these young people and where is that? sentiment in me when I'm listening to them or I'm watching them behave in a way that I feel is not good for them. Are they still allowed to have all of themselves on a good day? The answer to that is absolutely. And I want to be present for that. And it just turns out that even on the day when I don't feel like it, it still must be true right? That, that they are indeed allowed. I don't have to like it or agree with it, but they're allowed. And to see how that trickles into the rest of the day. Because what I also understand from my own therapy is that my inability to, to be with them in whatever way in that process uh, means that I'm not that way with myself either. And that it really does start there. There's some impatience uh, that I have toward myself. There's some thinking that I should be another way or doing a different thing. And if I can't tolerate that in myself, I obviously can't tolerate it in someone else. And so then I have to 
come full circle and then I can sit here with you and say, oh, wow, I, I get that now. Mm-hmm. I get why it's important for me in that moment to just be quiet, but to still be there. So I didn't get up and move somewhere else. I did sit there and wait for it to be whatever it was going to be, which is another one of those things, right, that we we don't want, we so don't want to be uncomfortable or uh, put out in any way. But I do, yeah, I do think that those are two different things, though, because I think a lot about in that moment, comfort and being put out as as two different things, because being put out is personal, Um, thinking about uh, people pushing into your body. Mm -hmm. um, That is something that you reserve for yourself. And that's a decision that you're making on your own for yourself and your own body. But I do think that there's something about comfort and the presence of a gaze. Um, or a kind of societal expectation that then you bring into that moment that isn't just about Helga and Helga's body, but is about how other people may be observing these teens that you feel some kinship towards. And so then that's that protective kind of force that you feel. But I always try to question where is that coming from? Mm -hmm. I've been really keen on on trying to find the spaces in which I can feel most messy um, and and giving other people permission for that too. I mean, like nobody's got it going on like that in the way that we think they do. That was the biggest, most amazing lesson that I've learned in the last few years because I was so invested in perfection and so observant of the people that I felt were examples of that. And the closer that I got to them, the more I realized that that that's personally not their goal because they're older and mature enough to know that it's not a possibility, right? Where they're just like, I gave up on waking up at 5 a.m. Like, I just don't do that, you know? Um, but then additionally, there's so much energy that I could put into this decision on who I should be, how I should be, and where is any of that coming from? Because if it's a deep-seated desire to be the best Kimberly, sure. You know, or if it's this deep-seated desire to in some way impress someone else, like, I don't have time and it will not stick. It won't stick. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the, that's kind of the difference between comfortable and, and being put out where there's that moment when your heart just like, but it's like, what what is making me feel this way? What things, I mean, you even said it, like in what ways can I challenge myself to better think about where it's coming from? Mm-hmm. Because some of those things are just bigger than us and things that we will continue to have to bear the weight of and unpack and rearrange and and work with and work with and be with yeah is there a thing that you do every day that you feel every person can do that brings you closer to the person you want to be drink water (laughs) uh in a very serious way because i just started drinking water i feel like a crazy person talking about this way but thinking about the pause because you can't be doing a lot of stuff when you stop to to fill yourself. Um, and it can be something that doesn't have to be as performative as eating a meal. But these little pauses, that for me is the consistent thing that I do every day to keep the beat. One of my friends, Imani Uzuri, talks to me when I was really going through it. She was talking to me about water rituals. And she was encouraging me to just like take water and sprinkle it on my head every morning and just let the water guide where I was going every day. And so I think a lot about that in, in the practice of drinking water every day where I in this moment of pausing where I can't speak, I'm not running because I'll spill all over myself. You know, there's this way in which it totally stops you and then also fills you and is so deeply important to like a life source. So that's something that I I think everyone should do. It's a simple step, but one that I think is really, really, for me was profound. What about you? What do you think? No, that's, that's so great. I sit. Mm. I do you meditate? I do. I don't even call it that. I literally sit. I light a candle, I sit on a cushion, and I look at it Mm. for half an hour. Sometimes I do it for longer. After that, uh, I write a page, one page in my journal, and I try and read something helpful. But I also added water to this morning thing not so long ago, and I don't even know why. I just did it. I pour the water, I drink it, and then I start my clock. I love it. 
I went to see a Reiki healer and in the session that I had we did chanting like letting your your voice do what it wants to do I think especially in a city like New York and then the ways in which it demands us to be particularly articulate it's like if we want to get something out of the city you better know how to ask for it and so I think that chanting and just like nonsensical noise for yourself is something that I want to bring more into my my day-to-day practice. So when you say chanting, do you what do you do? Literally it was in that session it was just letting noise Whatever come out. Whatever sound wanted to come out, come yeah. out. Um so it's not singing, it's not okay. Yeah. It's one of those things where like I don't mean to like generalize but like you know black people have rhythm you know it's like I was just thinking about like how I was so tempted to like sing a song or to like match with some sort of like melody of some sort but it really was just allowing the sound to come out I went to see the healer because I was feeling really congested creatively it was before I started seeing my therapist but also was having a really difficult time articulating Mm. ideas that that I felt proud of creatively my brain got into really like nuts and bolts kind of this goes with this and thinking way too practically and the chanting was what she had suggested as the remedy but there was something about like I was also swaying and just kind of letting energy be released from my body and that felt really supremely powerful and it is about giving ourselves permission to have our voices in whatever way from the smallest gestures to the most grand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's so, so, so huge. Do you have anything that you've written you want to share? Just something, I don't know what. Hmm. I have been wanting to write more for myself. Mm-hmm. And I haven't quite done it successfully. Mm-hmm. But I did go to Cape Town in September, which was my first time visiting the continent. And I took really diligent notes on the way back. And not in like a, these are the 10 things to do in this city thing. Um, because I know a lot of people who do that really effectively and shout out to them because they send me their lists. But I wrote very specifically about being in an art space that was predominantly black and what that felt like. Do you have it here? I don't, but. Do you remember it? I do remember it. Um, I went. Yeah, of course. I went to uh, a cocktail for the opening of the Contemporary Art Museum there. And I wasn't invited to the cocktail, which is not the first time I've gone to a party I wasn't invited to. But walking into the room and, and watching people lay on the couches of this exquisite space, watching the ways in which black bodies moved through that cocktail was so different than anything I'd ever seen. I think that moment is something that's going to be impressed upon my spirit for a really long time. And it was brilliant because I was the friend that I crashed with. He was invited. I wasn't. And he was just like, this is my guest. And it was great. But I was, I was starting to articulate it to him and he was like, you need to write it down. And so that was really the fullness of the moment was one being in that space and watching the way that people moved and, you know, all of the two cheek kisses with these brown faces rubbing up against each other. And, but like not having that feeling of, of not being, invited into a space everyone in the room I think felt welcome and empowered and cosmopolitan and it was just it was so luscious uh, and then to have that quiet moment with a friend who said write it down I never thought I was going to leave the country I never thought that the levels of success that I've been able to achieve and like the many many more goals I have I don't always think in like confidence first sometimes I bump into opportunities sometimes I kind of futz my way through things And being in that moment and having someone anchor it and acknowledge it as significant and historic, if only to me, but that that still needed to be recorded was dope. And so when I was flying back, I just kind of wrote down day by day the things that I did. Um, And especially in Cape Town of all cities, because it is such a loaded place. When I was there, I was staying in a really posh resort, which I was really into um, (laughs) because I'm like not so secretly bougie. Um, But then also being able to go out to the townships on that trip because I had a friend who was really generous with time and, and, and rode out with me and showed me all of them and was talking about what it meant to grow up there, being a child of the 90s and teaching me what Ubuntu meant and like taking me to the, the Bree spot and just 
it was exactly the way that I like to encounter spaces where I can see, you know, some of the highest, most posh, and then also the spaces that perhaps don't ha- aren't well moneyed in that way, but then also being taken hand in hand to see the robustness of a culture. Because I think sometimes in certain cities, especially in the States, you'll roll through certain neighborhoods and you'll know that that is like the low income neighborhood, but actually getting a hand in hand and this is this store and this is why it's significant and this is this person and this is why it's significant. Like that is, you know, what I journaled about where it's, it's not just like, oh, there were townships and there were passport offices and during the time of, it's like almost everywhere in Cape Town you can see Tabletop Mountain. Like this like wondrous, majestic thing and then also being able to see that majestic beauty in everything from the cocktail party to, you know, the cookout spot. Do you feel responsible to someone or to something? I think my my instinctual answer is that we all do and should. And that's why the Cape Town story was really great, having a friend say, record it. I think for me personally, yes, I believe in the things that I'm doing as historic. But that has nothing to do with the ways in which other people qualify it. It's just because I know every day can be a long day most times is a long day, right? Um, and being able to have the record of those things um, and being able to look back and, and be proud of past iterations of myself is something I take really seriously. There's there's a thing that needs to happen right here, right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're interested in. That's, that's what we came to do, to yeah. do that thing. Yeah. And so maybe we've done it. Yeah. Thank you, my love. Thank you. You can always read her Tumblr blog, Black Contemporary Art. She's also the social media manager at The Met, and she's on Instagram at Museum Mammy. She is writer, curator, and activist. Kimberly Drew. I'm Helga Davis. You can find me at Facebook at Helga Davis. And thanks for listening. This episode of Helga was edited by Crystal Hawes with help and mastering by Irene Trudell and original music by Alex Overington. New Sound's senior producer is Alex Ambrose. To learn more about New Sounds and to discover hand-picked genre-free music 24-7, visit our website at newsounds.org.